So I designed a product for myself. I was like, I just want to make the most comfortable pair of socks in the history of feet. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Dave Heath. How are you, man? Good, dude. How are you? Good. Good to have you. So got to kick it off. When when you were born, did you come out and immediately have to like hoard socks? And it was like you had an a, immediate obsession. Just take me back to the beginning. You know, surprisingly, I did. I was, uh, yeah. I think socks was the first word I said. And no, <laughs> um, you know, I, I always actually joke that like, no one, there's no five-year-old running around being like, I want to be a sock entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's no, I don't think anybody aspires to that. You know, it's interesting, you know, my story, I actually did start kind of entrepreneurship young. My dad is a first generation immigrant, you know, who moved to this country, you know, started, I think he, he like worked at a bunch of gas stations, then bought a gas station, then owned five gas stations, and then started a business in the basement of our house, which I think is you know, it's so interesting, right? Because like long, you know, you think back, you know, 50 years and, you know, people weren't raising $3 million with some deck that, yeah. you know, Red Antler designed for them. So, you know, he, you know, he, he saved his money and, and kind of, you know, started his business with $5,000 of, of savings and, you know, built it kind of brick by brick over 35 years. He just retired at the age of 80 last year. Wow. Um, and so, it was interesting. I like grew up with entrepreneurship, like in my house. Right. And I always say like, I don't know how much of it is like genetic or, you know, you know, nurture versus nature, but somehow like I was that kid in the neighborhood who like had a lemonade stand, walked dogs, cleaned gutters, you know, washed cars, anything I could do early on for a buck, I would like hustle. And, and where do you, you think know, that came from? And as you said, you don't know if it's nature or nurture. I had the same thing. My dad and grandfather were entrepreneurs. So I just, I didn't take it for granted and not in the mm. traditional use of the term, but the actual literal meaning, meaning like, I just thought that's what you did. Like, right. Yeah. You know, so. I don't know. I think, I think it kind of came through either like me wanting to, you know, play house, right. But play business, yeah. right. Cause that's yeah. what I saw my yeah. dad do. Like it was literally in the basement of our house when we first started and I helped, you know, package samples and stuff. But then I also think through values, you know, anytime I remember like, if I wanted like the new GI Joe, my parents were like, all right, well, you got to work for it, right? Yep. Like you, we're not just going to buy it for you. And so I always remembered like, that was, I think like early on where like, I think the hustle, you know, came from. And so I went to school for entrepreneurship up at Babson. Um, I knew, you know, with a learning disability, I knew that I should be at a smaller school and I was really into entrepreneurship. And this was, I went to, I, I, I entered Babson in 2001. Uh -huh. um, and so you think this is like pre-Facebook, you know, uh -huh. we just had the dot-com boom, but like entrepreneurship was not celebrated the way it is today, right? You didn't have yeah. Shark Tank, you didn't have all these like shows about, you know, starting businesses. And, you know, the, the, I remember like reading Entrepreneur and Inc. Magazine and people being like, what? 
are you reading? Like it's a weird yeah. you know, <laughs> publication. And so I went to school for entrepreneurship, always kind of like knowing eventually I wanted to start my own business. And yep. Babson's curriculum is is heavily focused on, you know, your freshman year, you start a business with 30 of your classmates. And then, you know, sophomore year, you do a consulting project with a local business. And so I, I really like, I went to school, I like loved what I was learning. I think a lot of people go and they're like, um, you know, psych 101 or, you know, some liberal yeah. arts degree, right? And I'll figure it out when I get out of college. I like knew going in, this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, I wish I knew about that school. Like now, obviously, we have a ton of mutual friends that yeah. we met through Ed that went to Babson. I feel like I missed that part where it's like, that was a perfect fit for what I wanted. Like I knew I wanted to be entrepreneurial from like eighth grade. And then right. somehow that just didn't end up on the radar. And I was even looking at the Berkeley school. Your of guidance music. counselor failed you. Oh, I had two and one was okay. But my, my actual <laughs> school guidance counselor was so bad. I hired a, my mom helped me hire a separate person to give me guidance. Awesome. Yeah. I had a fun time in school, but I feel like I would have thrived in a different way at Babson. Um, See, I didn't have fun. I didn't have fun in the traditional yeah. sense, right? Babson's yeah. a small school, you know, no big sports teams. It's in Wellesley, Massachusetts, which is like a very wealthy town. So everyone lives on campus. There's no off-campus yeah. off housing. You know, 1,200 students undergrad, like you knew everybody on basically day one. So yeah. it was not a party school by any stretch, but I, I do in, in hindsight, so like I went for the actual education and I got some, I got my partying into my twenties and living in New York city. So yeah. and uh, I did the I opposite. I went to Arizona. So, oh yeah. You yeah. see, yeah. Quintessential. <laughs> exactly. So prior to that, like, what do you think, obviously, as you said, you grew up around the entrepreneurship side, you had the lemonade stand and dog walking, but was there like a moment, like in high school, what kind of stuff did you do for work? Like once you got to the point that it's like, not the little, you know, you're not the 10 year old that's, you know, walking dogs, but you're like, you yeah. get to that high school level. What were you doing? Well, I think everybody, you know, everybody starts with like the obvious stuff. I worked at the Gap and, yeah. you know, I was 14 years old and my mom drove me to the Gap. And I just remember, I think I worked there for about three or four weeks. And I was like, I hate this. This is terrible. <laughs> it's a big company. They're like checking my bag on the way out. I'd like, exactly 30 minutes for lunch, 15 minutes in the hour. I was just like, this is so regimented. And funny enough, like I, I would go eat at this deli down the street. And like, I just remember the guy who's like the owner of the deli. And he's like, you know, the quintessential, like central casting, you know, Italian, you know, yeah. like big energy, you know, and they had like a help wanted sign in the window. And I was like, Hey, like, I, yeah, I hate my job down the street. I was like, what are you looking for? And he's like, ah, oh, well, I'm going to sweep and stack the beverage counters and stuff. But I was like, oh man, this is like, if I get to hang out with you all day, this sounds like awesome. And it was like <laughs> entrepreneurial. And then so I worked there and then I, I was really into like electronics and car audio and stuff. So I then got another job installing like car alarms and car stereos at like a local car place. Again, like around like operators, like, you know, small business yeah. operators. But also being, um, doing what you were passionate about too, like jumping into things exactly. you were happy to do, not just about the paycheck. Totally. Yeah. So that was like, that was my high school like job experience. Awesome. Um, and then when I got to college, you know, my, I spent my freshman year doing the traditional, like get an internship at some big yeah. company. I went to work for SAP and I was yeah. like, again, I was like getting coffee and making food. I was like, this is terrible. Yeah. Um, this so, freshman style you know, job. Yeah. The real next summer, I was like, I'm not doing that. This is a, it was yeah. a really bad job. I was not happy. And I was always like, I always knew that I was like kind of salesy. And, and so I, I 
stumbled into one of those like Cutco sales yep. like seminars and they're like, there's the knives and now you cut it. And I was like, oh, this is right up my alley. I was yep. like, I will kill I didn't know you were a Cutco guy. I was. I was actually no. one of the top salespeople in the Northeast. And I, I was I have like over four hundred thousand dollars in lifetime sales in three in three or four summers. Wow. Um, I did one summer and had I think it was like seventy-five thousand in my first summer and then yeah. went to open an office and bailed. But yeah, my partner I never well. did the office opening thing. I was yeah. just like, I got to fifty percent commission. And I was just like, man, this is like too easy. Yeah. Yeah. I worked like four hours a day, four days a week. I made my own schedule. All my other friends were like working at Bear Stearns and yeah. City, you know, schlepping into the city wearing a suit and tie. And I was like driving around, you know, like selling knives to, you know, housewives. And, you know, I think my last summer I made like over a hundred thousand dollars and all yeah. my friends were making like twelve fifty an hour. And so that was like, again, I think that was another like step in my entrepreneurial journey where I was like, control your own destiny you know, yep. decide when I want to work, how hard I want to work. And I, I, I like loved being self-employed. And that's in Cutco was like the best sales training. If you oh went in on that, I still use oh, Cutco 100%. sales tactics yep. to this day. hundred like percent. Objection handling, and yeah. like building value. Yeah. And like Present value things. before price always. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was, I, I loved it. I like, I, I bought into it, hook, line and sinker. I was like at the conferences, yep. like, yeah. I was I was a total champion. I, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Oh, that's awesome. So I did that and and I and I knew I was good at sales. And so when I graduated, I think like most broke college kids, you graduate and you're like, how can I make as much money as possible? Like that's the only thing you care about, right? But for something that you're good at. And so I was like, all right, I'm good at sales. I wanna, you know, just like did some research and I was like, oh well, software salespeople can make like a few million bucks a year if you're like really good and established. And it's like, okay, maybe that's going to be my career. Like early on, I'll be a software salesperson. So I went to work for, you know, this software company, you know, I, I just found, you know, every job I had, I was just like miserable. And I, but I went from co like smaller company to smaller company. And then when I was 24, after two years out of college, I started my first business, which ended up like not working, but it was this concept of, again, like Facebook was just starting to like, you know, roll out. Out and you know this is 2007 mm -hmm. so i think they just opened it up to high school students and you had things like friendster and dogster and like yeah. all these like niche social media it wasn't like a centralized social media platform and so i created a social networking site for apartment buildings in manhattan because i lived in this like basically dorm room in manhattan it was like it was called the river gate it was like 1700 people lived in this building it was all young yeah. kids and i was like you know i was like oh, i really want to meet girls right i was like yeah. single in new york i was like there's cute girls who live in my building but i was like too nervous in the elevator to talk to them so i was like oh I'll create a social network and say this is how yeah. i meet them so i worked on that for about a year and a half I, I i invested some of my own savings into it and you know again this was before like the concept of like going out to raise like a few million bucks yeah. for an idea um yeah i don't think everybody realizes entirely. Anyone younger doesn't realize like how recent that is. The idea of like, oh my like God, the the pitch. yeah, it's the past little more than a decade. It's maybe a little more like Shark Tank and all that. I think is going on what season twelve or thirteen or whatever it is. So I right now I think it's like sixteen. Is it sixteen? Okay, so yeah. it's a little longer than that. Jesus, but yeah, yeah it, 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 but that was just getting started too. Like it's just not been like Social Network. The movie I think came out and like. 10 or 11. And I feel like that was kind of the inflection point where all of a sudden everyone's raising money for their startup.
Yeah, it was wild. So yeah. those were the early days. And so I worked on that. And as I watched my savings deplete, I was like, oh, I should probably get another job. Like this thing's not making money and I don't really have a line of sight to how it's going to make money anytime soon. And so I went to go work for this really small media company called Urban Daddy at the time. Yeah. Uh, I was the seventh employee and I ended up staying there for five years and, and grew the company to 150 people and, yeah. you know, $30 million of revenue. And I was like, it was like a basically a front row seat of being at like a fast growth, you know, startup environment from like yep. really early days. Um, yeah, Urban Daddy helped met. me launch my uh, first e-com company, Swag of the Month. They pushed it pretty oh, yeah. hard, which was awesome. Yeah, I mean, if, if you got, if back when they were hot, you know, yeah. if you got a listing in Urban Daddy, man, you were like made in the shade. I mean, yeah. Urban Daddy basically like launched Guilt Group and oh, yeah. a bunch of these other like, you know, you know big companies. Um, yeah. So worked there and that's where I met one of my co-founders, Randy. And, and we basically spent, we became best friends and over the five year period that I was there, we would always talk about like starting a business one day together and, you know, we'd, you know, share ideas and, and ultimately, yeah, stumbled upon the idea for Bombas. Yeah. So, so how did that happen? Obviously you were becoming privy to how e-commerce was working because Urban Daddy had its own and worked yeah. with so many. And that's what I, I, I actually was on the e-com team. So I had started in, in kind of partnerships and business development, growing their, their email list, which I'm sure you can appreciate, Yeah. you know, back when like, you know, you do like list swaps and like, yep. you know, so I learned everything about email marketing and the power of email marketing. And then I, you know, as my career grew there, I ended up moving into kind of their perks, which was like their Groupon, but exclusive Groupon type business, and then worked on their e-com project, which sadly never launched. But I had a front row seat at like working with Magento and some of these other yep. things. But during that period, you know, I think, you know, from the moment I graduated from Babson, I always knew that my end goal was going to be to start and run my own business. And so, you know, after my building social networking site failed and I, you know, put about $30,000 of my own savings into it. I was like, oh, I'm probably going to start workshopping ideas before I just run with them. Right? Yeah. It's like a really expensive lesson to like, you know, write it all out on paper as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So I probably wrote, I don't know, 40 plus business plans, you know, financial things. And I, I realized that through that practice, I would get to a certain point where I'd either hit some sort of a roadblock or a question I couldn't answer. And then I'd kind of put that thing on the shelf. And, you know, the interesting thing about the idea of a Bombus is, you know, this was early 2011, Tom's Shoes was in their fifth year of business and doing a couple hundred million of revenue. So growing quite rapidly, had obviously pioneered the, you know, give back business movement. It's interesting to think back to the timing, but in the fall of 2010, so like four or five months prior, that small little eyewear company called Warby Parker launched and they yeah. were like, they were the first company that like had adopted one for one, but for a different category. So that now it was one for one eyewear. And there was a tremendous amount of hype. You know, they got covered in Vogue and GQ. And yep. I happened to, you know, I was obviously followed along with what was going on in the startup world. You know, both of those companies were, were you know, yep. very adm admiring of them. And I was scrolling on Facebook one day and I came across this post that said, socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. And I kind of sat there and I was like, pretty sad. Here's an item of clothing that I've never spent more than a few seconds a day thinking about. And now it's being perceived as a luxury item for over 600,000 people living here in the US and even more globally. And immediately I wasn't like, oh my God, a business. I was just like, you know, this is, you know, it's a pretty like sad, but interesting fact. And so I remember sharing the idea 
you know, the comment with Randy and he was like, oh, wow. Like I watched the same reaction. And I think after a couple of weeks of like, you know, it's doing with me, I was like, oh, I was like, maybe we could start a sock company where we donate a pair for every pair that we sell. And at first, I mean, obviously you hear like start a sock company. And I was like, ah, maybe this is like a fun little project, right? Yeah. I'm not like, you know, I, I didn't think I had asked, I, I know I didn't have aspirations of it being a billion dollar, you know, <laughs> multi, you know, huge company. Like, you know, I didn't start out, I think the way that the Warby guys or Bonobos or these other guys who are like, we're building the next big, massive brand and we're going to raise 10 million and then 40 million and then a hundred million. I was just like, I don't know, let's like build an Indiegogo campaign. Let's like start making some socks. I had a really lucky kind of purely by chance connection. I remember telling my dad over dinner one night, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to start the sock company. And he was like, oh, your godfather spent 40 years in the sock business, like very successful. I don't know what he did, but you should go talk to him. Turns out that he was the president and CEO of a very big global sock brand called Gold Toe. And then left Gold Toad, started a private label sock manufacturing company, which made socks for, you know, Ralph Lauren, Nautica, you know, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, like all the big kind of, yep. you know, fashion, fashion houses. And so I talked to him. Godfather. Like, My godfather, randomly. I mean, I didn't, talk no to the guy. I didn't talk to the guy in like 12 years, you know, but, you yeah. know, so, so, so random. So yeah, I, I ended up getting on a call with him and he was like, I know all the manufacturers, like you tell me what you want to make and like, I'll make all the introductions for you. So like, that was a massive, massive, like leg up. And so, yeah, so I spent two years on kind of product development, you know. Were you still working at Urban Daddy? I I spent a year, I was, my first year was at Urban Daddy and then I left and then joined a private equity firm and worked on kind of their media portfolio Okay. Uh, all while kind of moonlighting, you know, this, I, I was developing a product. I'd never, I never created a product before in my life. So like, there was a massive learning curve for me to, you know, work alongside manufacturers and, you know, I wasn't a designer. I wasn't like, uh, I'd never worked in textiles. I didn't know, like know how to speak the lingo. So it's just like, I would go to the store, I'd buy a bunch of socks and I'd be like, I really like the toe seam on this sock and I really like the fabric on this sock and I kind of like Frankenstein it all together and I'd send it over to them and be like oh that's a single loop Terry blah 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 feature and like that's a Y-stitch teal and I started like learning all this sock lingo and so I designed I think I think originally one of the competitive advantages I had is that like I didn't come with any industry bias right I didn't come saying like oh like margins should be this and you know costing should be that and you know i was just like i'm a customer so i designed a product for myself i was like i just want to make the most comfortable pair of socks in the history of feet and you know i didn't think about cost at all i was just like do this and do that and then eventually they were like this is the most expensive athletic sock we've ever produced like no one is going to pay what you would need to sell this for in order for you to like make this a successful business. And I was like, I think you're wrong. It's like, yeah. I think people would care about a seamless toe and really high quality cotton and, you know, arch support that, you know, hugs your foot and all these like performance benefits. And and really kind of where I triangulated the, the early kind of market opportunity, I was like, the market is so fragmented from low cost, low quality commodity type products like Hanes and Fruit of the Loom and Jockey. Yeah. And then you had these like very specialty 
you know, athletic brands like Belega and Features and, you know, all these like, you know, athletic, like sport specifics of running or cycling or mm-hmm. hiking or cycling. And I was like, oh, there's like a ton of innovation and, and technology in these products that make the products feel more comfortable. Because obviously you're running a marathon, you need yeah. moisture wicking and seamless toes and these form fitting products. And I was like, I want to take all of the innovation that's happening here and bring it to more of a mass market consumer product, right? Every day kind of look, we're all on our feet all day long, whether you're, you know, a grandfather chasing the grandkids or a doctor or a firefighter or, you know, a real estate agent, right? Running around, like we're yep. all on our feet. And it's kind of like the mattress thing, right? You spend a third of your life, you know, on a mattress, you should like buy a nice mattress. And I was like, you spend two thirds of your life in socks, you should probably spend money on some socks. And so yeah. I thought that the value proposition was there. But um, I love that. that was, you see that with that a lot of early entrepreneurs. Yeah. And you see that with a lot of early entrepreneurs is almost, it's a cockiness and a naivety in terms of like, I don't know, everybody in the industry is telling you this isn't going to work. Like right. this is too expensive. And you're like, yeah, but I think it will. Like, there's nothing you right. have nothing to base that off of, other than like right. I don't know. But I, I kind of disagree. Well, I do it. So fuck it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And did you ever? I mean, were there points where you're like, oh shit, we are priced out, or was it like actually like right away you're like, we're good? No, no. I mean, you know, I built the financial model from the ground up. I obviously was like, we're going to go direct to consumer. So I knew that I wasn't going to have to give half my margin to a store, and I was like, you know. We can, you know, I, I built in the cost of our donation sock from day one. And I mean, look, in, in hindsight, I think we launched with like a 54% margin, which anybody in apparel will tell you, like, there's no way you can build a business on a 54% right. margin. It has to be like 70%, you know, minimum. But I was like, yeah, but you know, we're small, we'll, we'll get to scale and, you know, margins will increase and we'll get some leverage and economies of scale on shipping and all these other things. And you know, that that's where kind of my Babson business knowledge, I think, came yep. in and 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 it did. I mean, you know, we we have an incredibly healthy margin business today yep. at extreme scale. I was gonna say um, it took that it did take that scale though, right? That is where you found that. Yeah. Yeah, nice. for sure. But again, we were the the digital first nature. And I think like when we also started, I mean, you're in this business, so like you'll you'll remember it's like you know, you started in kind of like 2012, 13, 14, like it was kind of like the perfect moment to start a direct-to-consumer brand because the ad platforms on Facebook and stuff were mature enough where the data targeting and segmentation was, was you know, it was sophisticated enough that if you knew how to use it, you could really target. But all the big brands and there was not a lot of venture in consumer back then. So like, you know, the CPMs are really low. And so, you know, when we went out to start to like, you know, spend some money on marketing, you know, we, you know, we were like looking at, you know, three, four, six, seven dollars, you know, CPAs, you know, which allowed us to kind of test and learn and figure out which audiences were good without burning through a ton of cash. Uh, but I think one of the most important parts of our, of our story was, like I said before, and I think this is, a, I love to kind of let other entrepreneurs know that, you know, we didn't follow the path of, of a lot of our direct-to-consumer, you know, peers. Like, we didn't raise a lot of capital. You know, we we bootstrapped the first, you know, basically to the first million bucks of revenue. We, we launched on Indiegogo. The campaign cost like $3,000 to put together. We had like hired an NYU film student to make the video. We wrote the copy ourselves. And we did $150,000 in sales in our first 30 days. And then 
you know, after five months, we'd done 500,000. And after, you know, a year, we were close to a million, all before we had raised, you know, a single dollar of capital. Yeah. And if I remember right, you also had a, because I remember we connected in either 14 or 15. I can't remember exactly when it was introduced. And when I talked to you, you had already built a massive data platform from the beginning that you were collecting all yeah. user data. Like you were very, very data focused from the beginning. Like talk about that, because that's something as someone that's talked to tens of thousands of e-com companies, not normal for to like yeah. have that ahead of time and that foresight. This is, you know, I think another one of these moments of kind of chance. I <laughs> like a true, like a true uh, fish out of water. I, you know, I was trying to learn both manufacturing, but also e-com at the same time. And like this world of digital marketing was just starting to like, you know, come to fruition and, and mature in, in really its infancy. And I remember doing like a, an e-com like 101 day at, at General Assembly. And I was like, all right, you know, listen to a bunch of speakers. And honestly, most of them, it's, it was like garbage. You know, they're, they're, they're mostly pretty bad. And this one guy got up, I think Adam Schwartz, um, he was the COO of Busted Tees. And then he went on to found um, Tea Public. And he sat up there and he was talking about, you know, cohort analysis, customer data platforms. And he just spewed a ton of information. And I just sat there like dumbfounded. I was like, he might as well have been up there speaking a foreign language. I was like, I don't understand a word, but he sounded so it was he presented it with such conviction that I was like, this dude's really fucking smart. Yeah. So I walked up to him at the end of the thing and I was like, your presentation was incredible. I didn't understand a single thing of it. I was like, I'm starting this, you know, e-com business. Would you like to join my advisory board? I'll give you some equity. Like I know, like we need to know what you know. And so like, you know, that's, that was kind of our early entree. And he was like, look, we're going to build a customer data you know, table and we're going to track all the orders and look at AOV and cost per acquisition and what channel and UTM tracking and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is like, this is it. Like, yeah. this is how the Warbies and, you know, all of the other brands that were like true digital native pioneers were, I knew this is how they were growing, but I didn't understand, you know, how it worked. And then he ended up interviewing our first who's now our, our chief customers and chief marketing officer, our first VP of marketing hire, Kate Hewitt, who's an absolute tour de force. But I was like, I don't know how to interview these candidates. So I was like, yeah. I don't know. The first question I asked him, and he interviewed you know, them and, and her and was like, she's the real deal. She like gets this, this stuff. Um, awesome. So and he's been with he, you. He was, he was an awesome, awesome mentor. And it's 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 been a fun ride because obviously he's had a, a ton of success with T Public, but yeah. you know he he looks at us and he's like, "Wow, your size and scale is just incredible." So you had that first year, you got to a million bucks. I know you ended up on Shark Tank. Was that early or when was that? Yeah, so that was so we had launched the business in August of 2013. And then we got a phone uh, email from, from Shark Tank casting in April of 2014. And originally I thought it was like a scam. It's like, you know, Shark Tank casting 359274 at gmail.com. It doesn't look official at all. But I was like, ah, I'm a fan of the show. It's like, you know, it's a lark. And so I responded back and they were like, oh, we saw your Indiegogo campaign and love the concept and you know would you be interested in trying out for the show and so you know we, we took them up on their opportunity and it moved quite quickly i think from we talked with them in april and then by june 
you know, end of June, we were filming, you know, in, in LA. Nice. And so, you know, for, for those that didn't see our episode, we ended up getting a deal with Damon John, but you know, you film in June and then they're like, you, you may or may not air, yeah. you know, sometime between September and January. And so you're like, all right, that's not exactly easy to plan into. So we went back to, you know, business as usual. And then in September, we get a kind of email or phone call from them saying we're booked for the season premiere. And so, uh, you know, end of September, I think it was like September 26th, uh, our episode aired. And it was just a, a massive, massive boom for the business. Um, so, yeah, let's talk, because I've seen it. We've had clients that have been on Shark Tank. Like, actually, that Damon invested in, SheFit has been a client forever. And we yep. were with them before the Shark Tank thing. And so the effect, like replacing the Oprah effect, so to speak. How, oh, my God. What percentage growth did you see, like, that first week? God, it's hard to say what percentage growth. I mean, because we were, I don't know, we were doing, like, felt like we were doing maybe a few thousand bucks a day, you know? And, and then I think the first night we did 250,000, <laughs> our first like, weekend, we did 400,000 combined. And I know the total. Here, so in 2013, you did a million bucks or that first year. No, 20, so 2013, like from, from August to December, I think we did like, I don't know, three or $400,000. Okay. Um, and so, and so our, our, two nights. our like August to August, we did about 900,000 sales and then September came and that's when we were on Shark Tank. So yeah, so, um, so you that did first 900 was like all organic, no paid. We just kind of put the product out into the world, leveraged relationships with media friends, like, you yeah. know, worked in, in magazines and stuff. And, and that's when we were like raising a friends and family round. And so, you know, prior to Shark Tank, we were just operating the business normally. Yep. And then we go on Shark Tank. And then within two months of airing, we did 1.2 million in sales. Wow. Uh, we sold out of all of our inventory right before Christmas. And so ended 2014, just under 2 million in sales. Wow. So that was like our first full year. Yeah. And and how did it go? Like, how long did that hype last? How long did you feel that, you know, sort of when did you back from Shark Tank? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, I mean definitely from we got really lucky. So we were on the season premiere and then they re-aired our episode on Black Friday. So like, we were like at the jackpot of all yeah. jackpots. And so I think like definitely through holiday season, obviously we sold out of inventory. So it's hard to say, yeah. right. you know, how long that effect is. But, you know, people, there's a massive brand recognition, you know, tailwind that comes with it. And, you know, once you're, once you kind of do a deal with a shark on Shark Tank, you get, you get invited to like the ABC family and they put you on good morning America and they get your product featured on the view and you know, all of these other kind of like, you know, yep. cause they want to celebrate the businesses that were on shark tank. So it, it's hard to kind of pinpoint, but it was definitely, definitely a massive, massive kind of yep. step up for us from where we were at. And so still, I mean, I don't know the exact scale you're at, but I, I'm pretty sure you're in the nine figure revenues at this point. So yeah, we're a few, a few hundred million bucks. Yeah, that's what I thought. So yeah. going from, you know, you get to two, I assume you're still pretty, you know, but half of that two came in or less, more than half that two came in in the yeah. last quarter. Yeah. So yeah. you're going into on your run rate going into 2015, we are what, 5 million plus run rate? Yeah. So 2015, we did just under 5 million. And then the following year, we did 20 million then 50, then 100, then 170. And kind yep. of grown. So uh, that growth, that didn't come from a Shark Tank episode. There's no, I, I know, yeah. no, so, no, no, no. Yeah. So, so how'd you achieve that? How'd you keep up to like going from, 
I understand the five. That makes sense. You're probably getting caught up with the Shark Tank effect and then starting to double down. But going from five to 20, what really did that? Where'd that come from? Five to 20 was, God, it's interesting to think back that 2016 was like right when Facebook started introducing video ads. Got and it. So like, I remember it was like right at the time everyone's like, oh, like, you know, video ads are performing so well. Like, you know, you got, and I was like, oh, this, it's expensive to make a video like commercial, right? Like, you know, it's easy yep. when you're just like, all right, some socks, change the color of the background, put some copy. Like you can have like 10 graphic designers put out like 900 pieces of creative in like a matter of a few days. But like a video, like this is like a script and you had a production days and like it was it was a big, big, you know, lift. And we hadn't done it since our Indiegogo days, which was like really scrappy um, and we had way more time. But, you know, we were like, all right, maybe this is an interesting opportunity. We had just kind of we just hit our our millionth pair donated milestone, which was was really big for us. And the story goes that, you know, when we when we launched our Indiegogo campaign, I like half jokingly that promised, you know, my co-founders, I was like, if we ever get a, if we ever donate a million pairs of socks, I'll like tattoo the logo of our company somewhere. And I had zero tattoos at the time. I have like 25 now. It is like very addictive. Do not start say, once you break that seal, you're oh going. Oh my God, it's done. But I love them. But so I was like, all right, like, it'll be a lark. Like, you know, I'll get the tattoo of our, of our logo and like, we'll film it. And like, maybe we'll turn this into the video. And we had always loved this very famous like Dodge Dart commercial, you know, it was like a, one of the Super Bowl ads. And it was like, this is how to build a car. And it was like, you know, hire a designer, tear down the thing. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's an awesome, awesome career. It's like the launch commercial for the Dodge Dart. And I was like, I want to do this like quick clip, you know, storytelling, founder story, like how to build a company or how to donate a million pairs of socks. And what's interesting is like, you look back and the, there was a case study written about this video, which we call the million pair video, because it was like really one of the first like founder videos, right? Like now everybody has a founder video. Um, I'd like to think that like, we were like the dollar shave club, like funny video, but for like serious founders, like this is who we are and what we do. And so we did this video and our CMO is like, let's try it on Facebook's. But this video is two and a half minutes long. We're like, no one's going to watch this thing. Like we produced it mostly as a thank you to our customers and like a good heartfelt moment, celebrate the company milestone. And we put it out. And I think that single piece of creative over like two years has generated like $40 million worth of revenue. When we were putting it out, we were at the time, I think we were like averaging high 20s CPAs, like 28 bucks. We put it out, we started to see like five, six, you know, like single digit CPAs. And we were spending at scale. Like we were like putting millions of dollars behind this piece of creative. It was the same time, like when Purple Mattress came out with that, like very famous Purple Mattress, the like the Goldilocks one. And it was like this weird moment where like, long form like video ads were so new like video ads are so new to customers so they were like consuming it like content yeah and so it's this really interesting sweet spot and i think to this moment that video has over 150 million views across all platforms huh. and so like that was a massive catalyst from like a from, a, from an awareness and our ability to spend but and then and then it was like all incremental right it's like you know we started getting into direct mail we were obviously building out great email platforms we were starting to do paid search we knew that like 
paid marketing was going to be the engine. If we could figure out how to do that well, was going to be the thing that could really accelerate growth. And so, you know, we only, you know, the, the two moments, we, we only raised a million dollars of seed financing for 